0: Our Bible reading today comes from Mark chapter 15, which you can find on page 828 in the church Bibles or up on the screen. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him. Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. "'Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?' asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handled Jesus over to them. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. "'What shall I do, then, with the young one you call the king of the Jews?' Pilate asked them. "'Crucify him!' they shouted. "'Why? What crime has he committed?' asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, "'Crucify him!' Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called (laughs) together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among, among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sepactani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God.
1: Thanks very much, Jess. Uh, Friends, it's great to see you. If I haven't met you, my name is Baden. and it's my great privilege to oversee the work here at St. Stephen's. Can I encourage you to to take a Bible and leave it open there at uh, Mark 15? And uh, can I extend a very warm welcome to you on this significant occasion if you're a regular member or visiting tonight? It is great to have you. The events of Easter are events of central importance to the Christian faith. And so I pray as we consider them, uh, we will be greatly blessed and we will be greatly moved. Uh, Join with me as we pray and ask for God's help tonight. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this year to slow down on this Good Friday and to ponder and consider these great, great events. We pray that you would grant to us a fresh sense of the height, the width, the depth ...of your great love for us and for this world. Uh, we pray for understanding and we pray for deep conviction tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well friends, I want to begin tonight by asking you to reflect on the world that you live in for a moment... ...and ask you what hope you have for our world. You look out on our world each night, the uh, the uh, world that greets you on your TV screen... And you look at our world with its breathtaking beauty, but its uh, tragic heartache very often. And where is your hope for our world? Some of us will look at our world and they'll say, yep, things aren't too flash. Things seem to be getting worse. Uh, Climate change may destroy us if war and pandemics don't. The world seems in decline. I don't think we're going to recover. Maybe that's you. Your hope is waning. Others will look at our world and they will say, no, things are actually getting better. We're making progress in politics and technology and healthcare. And yes, we've got problems, but we're forging solutions. Things are looking up. Maybe that's you. Hope is rising. Others will reply and say, we seem to be going around in circles. Problems come and go, we've seen them before, we'll see them again. Things are no better or worse than they've been before and still others will say things are in real chaos. We don't know where we've come from, we don't know where we're going and when you think of the future, you are deeply, deeply apprehensive. Which perspective represents your own? Uh, Or maybe it's a combination of all those things put together at different times. And then if I was to ask you the related question of where true peace can be found in this world of ours, I wonder what you would say. Uh, Some of course might answer that peace is found within when we uh, accept ourselves, when we let go of past hurts and regrets and try to enjoy life. Others will say peace is found, I'm fairly sure, from getting away. Uh, From it all, uh, a cocktail, some sun and a deck chair is just the ticket. Take a trip, watch a movie, log off the devices. That's true bliss. That does sound reasonably good. Um, Others will say uh, peace is found when we work together to solve our issues. And still others, peace only comes when the system itself changes. When we take things in our own hands and the system changes. Which of those is your perspective? Or maybe it's a combination of all those things put together. Friends, what we're going to see tonight is that the Christian faith is all about hope and it is all about peace. It's about a hope worth having and it's about a peace that truly, truly lasts. And what we'll also see is that the problems we face in our world are not ultimately political. They are not ultimately economic. They are not ultimately social or environmental. No, they are deeply, profoundly spiritual. They are the result of humanity's broken relationship with God, our maker, And yet the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ came into our world to restore our broken relationship with God, our maker. He came to offer forgiveness, life and a hope and a peace that can never be taken away. That is what Easter is about. That is the fantastic, the wonderful, the life-changing, world-changing news of Easter. And so as we consider these events tonight and on Sunday, our hope is that each of us will grasp powerfully the good news of what Jesus Christ has come to do for us. Now, the passage before us is from Mark's Gospel. It is one of the, as you know, uh, one of the four New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. And if we've followed the story so far, we would know that Jesus is an impressive, impressive figure. His compassion, his power and his grace were absolutely magnetic. His command over nature, his command over sickness over evil, and even over death itself, uh, drew people from every walk of life to this incredible man. Vast crowds followed Jesus. And the religious and the unreligious alike were all drawn to this incredible man. And yet, as we come to this passage tonight, what strikes us is the seeming tragedy of it all. How has it come to this that such an incredible figure as Jesus, the Son of God, is standing on trial for his life. Uh, having arrived in Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel, who'd always opposed him, have Jesus arrested and they try him on false charges and they hand him over to the Roman officials to be killed. Pick it up there at chapter 15, verse 1, as Mark records this. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders The teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plan. So they bound Jesus, they led him away and handed him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. And so again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. So you can see, uh, friends, as this very famous scene opens, this trial of Jesus Christ, there is a palpable sense that hope has been dashed. What seems to be happening here is a terrible, terrible miscarriage of justice. Having brought hope and healing and blessing and life and to thousands of people, an innocent man is now wrongly tried and accused. The identity of Jesus only adds to the tragedy. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Verse 2, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He says, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? The nation of Israel has been waiting for. Jesus replies and says, it is just as you say. Likewise, in Chapter 14, further back in this story, Jesus is being questioned by the high priest at another sham trial, uh, and uh, he asks Jesus, Are you the Messiah, son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and the expectation of what this Messiah would do and achieve was enormous. Having stunned the crowds with his compassion, his clarity, and his grace, many had hoped that he would liberate Israel, but those hopes now seemed dashed. Indeed, Pilate himself finds no basis for any charge against Jesus Yet pressured by the mob, he has a criminal, a hardened criminal, Barabbas, released instead, and Jesus is led away. Verse 15 paints the tragedy. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it upon him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. So at first glance, friends, what seems to be happening here is a terrible, tragic mistake and a tragic end. But... If we look a little deeper into the narrative, we'll begin to see that far from a terrible tragedy, there is something far, far more profound taking place. Instead of hopes dashed, the picture we're meant to be seeing is of a plan fulfilled. Jesus himself clearly grasps this. Indeed, on the night before, at the Garden of Gethsemane, As Jesus is betrayed and handed over to the Roman authorities, his disciples' first instinct is to take up arms and to fight. But Jesus says to them, put your weapons away. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus is saying that such is the power at his disposal He could easily have halted these tragic proceedings before his trial and everything else had even begun, but he did not. What's more, on no less than three occasions on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus had spoken to his disciples clearly about what would take place when he reached Jerusalem on the Easter weekend. And he said this on no less than three occasions. He said, we are going to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. You see, Jesus knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that these events would occur. Indeed, that they must occur. And when they did, Jesus welcomed these events. He willingly journeyed to Jerusalem to embrace them, allowing himself to be captured without contest, staying silent while questioned before Pontius Pilate. Further back in Jesus' ministry, Jesus said plainly, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is not at all surprised by these events. Things were going exactly according to plan. There is also a clear sense as Mark records his narrative and as the events of the crucifixion itself play out, that events were going exactly according to plan. Take a look at verse 24 where Mark records that as they crucified Jesus... Dividing up his clothes, the soldiers cast lots to see what each would get. Now friends, if we have eyes to see it, that is a direct quote from Psalm 22:18 in the Old Testament, written 1000 years prior to these events, a psalm that speaks in detail about the long foretold sufferings of the Messiah. Again, in verse 30 and following, Mark records that as he hung on the cross, the passers-by heap insults at Jesus. They throw insults at Jesus and abuse at Jesus. Come down from the cross and save yourself, they say. Likewise, the chief priests and teachers of the law mock Jesus. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Again, friends, those are quotes from Psalm 22, which foretold 1,000 years prior the sufferings of the Messiah. Indeed, in verse 34, the very cry of Jesus as he hangs on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a direct quote from the opening verse of Psalm 22 about the sufferings of the Messiah. You see, there is a clear sense that what was happening was going exactly according to plan. The question is, why? Why was the innocent son of God dying upon a Roman cross and what was that plan? To answer that question, we must notice two other very significant pieces of detail that Mark records because it is in these details that are supernatural in their scope that God actually communicates exactly what is going on. First of all, look there at verse 33. Mark says, At noon, darkness came over the entire land until three in the afternoon. Picture that. It's light and darkness, as we look out the window this evening, comes across the entire land for three hours. It is a darkness that cannot be explained by natural causes. Solar eclipses don't happen when the moon is full at Passover. What then is the significance of this darkness at midday? Well, centuries before, God had spoken to his people through one of his prophets, Amos, and God had announced that in the last times, in the day of salvation, His judgment on humanity's sin and rebellion will be symbolized with the sign of darkness in that day, declares the sovereign Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. You see, uh, this sign of darkness was a symbol of God's righteous judgment on humanity's Uh, failure and sin and unrighteousness, but the fact that it was occurring at this moment was a symbol that in some unique way, the long-spoken-of judgment of God was falling on the one forsaken and dying upon the cross in this scene. And secondly, we must notice the other significant detail Mark records there in verses 37 to 38. At the moment of Jesus' death, Mark records that the temple curtain was torn into from top to bottom, from top right down to the bottom. Dear friends, this was no ordinary curtain. It was 30 feet wide. It was 30 feet high and four inches thick, standing in the middle of Israel's temple. And of course, in the Old Testament, God had allowed his glory to dwell amongst his people Uh, uh, via that temple, but he had also instructed that this curtain be set up as a visual reminder of his profound, utter holiness. It functioned as a huge keep out sign, a reminder that broken, fallen, sinful humanity had no access to the presence of a holy God. What then does the tearing of this curtain symbolize? Well, by tearing it from top to bottom, God himself was demonstrating something profound was taking place as Jesus died on the cross. God himself was demonstrating that at this moment, at this hour, as the Son of God dies upon a cross, the barrier to humanity entering his presence was being forever taken away. And that a restored relationship of hope and peace with the living God was being opened. You see, friends, we need to look a little deeper and see that Good Friday was actually going exactly according to plan. And to help us grasp the significance of this, I I wonder if you can imagine for a moment uh, what it would be like never to have lied. I can't imagine that, can you? Uh, What would it be like never to have nursed bitterness or malice, not even once? Uh, and what would it be like never to have drawn someone into a deceit to benefit ourselves? And what would it be like, by contrast, to have always done as the Bible commands to have loved God with our entire heart, with our entire soul and mind and loved our neighbours perfectly as ourselves? What would that be like? It, it is striking, is it not, that even if we wanted to do right, we cannot do it consistently. Discord, malice, theft, greed, greed. Uh, Self-interest just bubbles up and it takes over. And that's just our failure on the small scale, not to mention Afghanistan and, and Syria and the Ukraine and oppressive dictators and fraudulent systems and corrupt governments, embezzlement and abuse. And just imagine for a moment if every failure, every sin we've ever committed was plastered, each one from top to bottom, all over the room today, on the roof Uh, all down the side walls on list after list after list. And they're all there and they're making us blush and they're condemning us. And worst of all, they're keeping us from relationship with the living God. And then listen again to those words of Jesus. From the cross, the perfect son of God cries, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And watch as the sky turns dark and the whole land is engulfed and listen to the sound of that mighty curtain being torn from top to bottom in the temple. You see, friends, it is here in this moment that the Christian rests their soul. It is here in this moment that we are invited to rest our souls tonight. Far from a tragic spectacle, the death of Jesus, the perfect son of God, the Messiah, it is no accident. It is no defeat. It is the victorious plan of God for salvation since the foundation of time. Isaiah the prophet also spoke about this moment 700 years before the events. He spoke about the long-awaited sufferings of the Messiah, and he said this in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on the Messiah, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And it is here, friends that the events of Easter Friday come into crystal, crystal focus. As we hear the cry of the Messiah, as we see the darkness and the curtain torn, what we must see is no accident, it is no defeat. It is a death full of power, a death securing hope, pardon and peace. Three days later, Jesus rose and he rules as Lord of all today. But here in this death, in this moment, once for all time, for all people, for all nations, God invites us to rest our souls. The Bible declares Christ died for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's us, to bring us to God." Friends, the problems in our world are not ultimately political. They are not ultimately economic. They are not ultimately social or environmental. They are deeply, profoundly spiritual. We are, without the work of Jesus, cut off from our maker. And yet, through his son Jesus, God holds out to each of us a restored relationship with him and an eternal life that will amaze us. That is why we call Good Friday so very, very good. Let's thank God for his provision for us. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us in sending your son to live the life we could not live, to die in our place and to rise securing new life. Help us to grasp the magnitude of these events and help us respond in a way that is fitting giving our life, our worship, our all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.